want to start this morning with a question. What is the first thing you think about when you think of God? What do you think about God? I wonder how oftentimes we think about what God is actually really like. In our modern culture, we have this idea of perhaps some elderly gentleman with a long white beard sitting up in heaven, twiddling his thumbs. We're not quite sure what he does. The deists, back in the time of the American Revolution and the founding, when deism was prevalent, they conceived God as a kind of watchmaker, someone who kind of wound up the hands of the clock of the world and stepped back to let it move. Other people have a picture of God as a kind of vengeance taker, someone who's ready to strike fire down from heaven. Thank you, Ben. My simple point is this. We probably have a picture in our minds of who God is when I say think about God. A.W. Tozer said what you think of when you think of God is probably the most important thing about you. What you think about when you think of God is probably the most important thing about you. Because if you don't have the right picture of God in your mind, you will not relate rightly to God. As if you were to relate to a person thinking they are something what they truly are not, the way you speak to them or the way you act to them will be misguided. It will not bring you into a relationship with that person if you are laboring under a caricature of them that is false. So my question, what do you think of when you think of God? Now, Jesus came here and we see throughout his earthly ministry, starting in the Sermon on the Mount and going on through his entire ministry, he came to give you a certain picture of God. And it is this, God as a father. When you think of God, do you think of a father? Not just any father. Do you think of the best father? Now, do you see why so many of us might struggle initially to process God as the best father? Because frankly, from a physical sense, you have only one father. Now, that's not to say that other people didn't play a father-like role in your life for whom you are grateful. We shouldn't diminish that. But you have one biological father. And for some of us, the picture of the father that we got was not a godlike father. For some of us, we did not know our biological father. For some of us, the biological father that we had was not a picture of who God is. We saw him as an angry father, as a grudging father, as a father even who may be a harmful father to our well-being. And then we think, think of God as a father. No! So how do we think about God as the best father? What does the best kind of father look like? Well, this morning, we're going to look at a picture. It is one of the most famous parables, if not the most famous parable, that Jesus ever gave. It's a story about a father. It's a story about a father that is intended to picture who God is. You know, it wouldn't be too far off if the first thing that came to mind when you thought of God was this dad you'd be pretty close. You'd be there. What does the best kind of father look like? And how does he act, particularly when we see in our own lives so often 
maybe fathers that did not meet that standard. Well, this parable we call the parable of the what? The prodigal son. Do you know what the word prodigal means? What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of a prodigal? Someone who runs off, right? That's what it means. No, it doesn't. Look it up in the dictionary. The word prodigal means someone who spends something recklessly or extravagantly. That's why we call him the prodigal son, because he got his dad's money, his inheritance, and he went and he wasted it. He spent it recklessly. But do you know what also the dictionary would tell you, what the word prodigal means? It, it means having or giving something on a lavish scale. Do you know what this story really is? It's not the story of the prodigal son. It's the story of the prodigal father who recklessly and extravagantly gave love to replace the humiliation and shame that his father had wrought, that his son, I should say, had wrought on him. And my picture that Jesus gives us in the inspired word of God is that we would have a picture of God as a prodigal kind of father who extravagantly and shamelessly pours love and affection on us in an unconditional way. The title of the message this morning is A Father's Love. A father's love. And whatever your picture of God was when you came here to, for the service today, I want to try to paint a new picture, one that Jesus has given us. And then also for our fathers here, ask us whether our life as a father looks at all like the best father, our heavenly father. One of the ways that we don't understand this parable, even though it's preached on so often, I'm sure nearly every one of us has heard a sermon or multiple sermons on this passage, it's because we don't know Middle Eastern culture. We can't truly come in to the depth of what Jesus is communicating here. And that's what I want to do for us today. I want to bring us into what this father would have been experiencing and feeling and what everyone in Jesus' audience would have been saying and thinking and feeling about this story. Let's start, first of all, with the rejection of the father. The rejection of the father. Now, let's start with a little bit of context on what Jesus is doing here. Will you go back to Luke chapter 15 and verse 1? Luke 15, 1 says, Then drew near unto him, unto Jesus, all the publicans, that's the tax cheats, the tax collectors, they were fraudsters. They were hated because they were along the, the bottommost barrel, stealing from the Jews. And sinners for to hear him. Now these are open, notorious kinds of sinners. Now look at verse 2. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Now we went through this idea a little bit, didn't we, when we went through the book of Mark. The Pharisees couldn't understand why Jesus ate with people who were open sinners, because they didn't. They kept their distance from those bad people. In fact, this word, he receives sinners, is not something just passive. It's not just, okay, well, he's willing to allow them to come in front of him. The word received, every other time this Greek word is used in the book of Luke, it has the idea of waiting for them. 
of eagerly awaiting them, of welcoming them to come. It's like Jesus is looking with, with, with wide open arms. Come on, come here, sinners. The worse, the better. Come to me. The Pharisees didn't get this. And so Jesus told them three stories. The first story that you see from verse 4 to verse 7 is talking about a, someone who has a 100 sheep. And one sheep goes off into the wilderness, into the mountains. And so now the guy only has 99 sheep. And Jesus asks, what's that shepherd going to do? And the answer is obvious. He's going to leave behind the 90 and 9. And he's going to go look for the one. Even though it's only a one out of 100, he wants that lost sheep. He tells him another story in verse 8. A woman having 10 pieces of silver. She's got 10 silver coins. Something very valuable to her. She loses one. What's she going to do? She's going to go and she's going to sweep the entire house and turn the entire house upside down until she finds the one. It was originally one out of 100 sheep. Now it's one out of 10 coins. And then what does he say? She's going to have a big party when she finds it. When the shepherd comes back with the one out of 100 sheep, he's going to throw a big party. And then when the woman finds the one out of 10 coins, what does she say? She's going to call everyone together and say, rejoice with me for I have found the piece, that one piece of silver which I had lost. Now listen to what Jesus, the conclusion he draws in verse 10. Likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Here's what he's saying. When one person returns to God, repents and believes the gospel, there is a party being thrown in heaven. There is joy overflowing in heaven. Now he's got one more story. We had one out of 100 sheep. We had one out of 10 coins. And now we have one out of two boys. One son. Now listen to what happens here. A certain man had two sons, verse 11, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me, and he divided unto them his living. Now you say, this doesn't seem like a big deal, does it? No, listen. Listen to what one commentator said. No Middle Eastern son ever asks for an inheritance, let alone is given it. Normally the father would explode with rage, for this is the ultimate insult. One pastor said uh, that, 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 um, that was talking about this. He said uh, something very interesting. He said this was, the, in effect, the son saying to his father, Dad, I just wish you'd die. Just divide up the inheritance. I want what, you, what, what is yours and what you are going to give to me, and I want it now. You're, in effect, dead to me. Now, if you think about it as well, how did people have wealth in that day? Some of them obviously had gold coins or other things. In an agrarian, in an agricultural society, how did you have wealth? Land. Land. His father may have sold off some of his property, and the man, the son, took it in cash, in money. So this already is an insult. It is rejecting the position of the father. It's saying, come on, Dad, I want what's yours. Now, notice what he then did. He abandoned his dad. Look at verse 13. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, so he made it all cash. He got it all in coins and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous. The idea is reckless, prodigal living. It was just a big party. 
And suddenly he looked and he had spent it all. Now you say, what did he spend it on? Well, we have one clue. Because the older brother at the end of this story says, he wasted your money with prostitutes. So here's a guy who undoubtedly has a whole ton of money from his wealthy father giving him a share of the inheritance. He goes out and he recklessly spends it on a party lifestyle and utterly shameful behavior, just living entirely for himself. Now, there's no doubt that word got back of this to the dad. How do we know? Because the older son knew. He's been out there living it up with prostitutes. How do you think that son would have affected his father's role in the community. This is another area of Middle Eastern culture we don't recognize. We live in this society in a guilt culture. It's an individualistic culture that you feel guilt individually for what you have done. Not the Middle Eastern culture in which Jesus lived. The Middle Eastern culture in which Jesus lived was a shame culture. It was an honor culture. You were looked at as a family unit. And as a father, if your son did what this son did, you were ashamed. You were held down in the community. You, your reputation was lowered. In fact, sometimes we look back in the Old Testament and we see families dying together for acts that the dad did. And we say, how could this be? That's a shame culture. It's an honor culture. You are a family unit. You're a tribe, and you need to stand up for your honor. So this man, this father, a wealthy landowner in that town, was now ashamed. His son had rejected his position. He had abandoned. He's rejected his person. But not not only that, it goes deeper. Look at verse 14. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land. They were out of food. And he began to be in want. He was going without. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine pigs. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. And no man gave unto him. This word suggests that it was a husk from what is known in Middle Eastern countries as the carob tree. You may have heard of it. And this carob tree was animal food. It was pig food. And not only that, it was used. It could be eaten for humans, but it said that it was the last of the last. When it was a famine, only then did people go to eat this kind of food. It was pig food. And here, this boy from that position of wealth with his father and honor, now has gone so low by his own behavior that he wishes he could eat pig's food. He was that hungry. And you say again, what does this mean? Well, to a Jewish boy, what were pigs? They were unclean. No Jewish man would ever think, no self-respecting Jewish man would ever think of owning pigs, much less working as a slave as a servant among pigs. So now think about the shame again that is reflecting back on the father. Can you imagine the reports? The talk of the town? Hey, Mr. So-and-so, did you hear where his kid is? What a shame. Not only did he waste his living on prostitutes, he's now dealing with pigs and everyone would have tut-tutted. Oh, how embarrassed that dad must be. People would have been giving him the side eye as he walked in town. His his own estate had been squandered, recklessly ruined by this son. Friends, this was the ultimate low for this Jewish boy, but it was a shameful, shameful position 
for this Jewish father. And at this point in the story, all of the people around Jesus would have been saying, what's the dad going to do? How's he going to get back his honor, his respect, his sense of worth in this shame culture? Well, let's see what happens. Verse 17 says, and when he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? They're not looking for this carob husk. And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee and am no more worthy to be called thy son. I have embarrassed you. I have shamed you. I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore. Just make me a slave. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Now everyone's on pins and needles right there. And that's why we need to see not just the rejection of the father, we need to see the response of the father. Look what his dad does. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. What does that tell you? He was looking. He sees way off in there on the dusty path, way out ahead, some dust being kicked up. And he looks and he says, is that my boy? How many times had that dad been to that same place? That same spot, looking out whether his son would be coming down the road. And then what happened? He saw him, and he had compassion. Inwardly, his heart was just moved for this boy that had humiliated him, that had effectively robbed him of his estate. He had compassion on him. Not only that, notice, and ran Again, you don't, we don't know Middle Eastern culture. For a middle-aged man like this to run would have been incredibly embarrassing. In fact, you can look at the old Middle Eastern sources and you can see how the rabbis of that day, particularly on the Sabbath, would wear robes and would never allow their legs to be seen. It was utterly shameful. Now you say, why? Well, because if you were wearing a robe as they did on that day, how would you run? You'd hike up your robes. You'd expose your scrawny, pasty legs. Oh, blinded! And kids could do that. Even maybe women could do that. But dignified, mature men who are the patriarch of the family who had a good social position, never. Why? Because think about a, a shame culture. A patriarch says, you come to me and come on my terms. I don't run to you on your terms. You come to me and I'll wait for you to get here. That's the view of the day. So for this man to go, to hike up his robe, exposing what was shameful in the community and running, we can't even, the the members of Jesus' audience right now would have been saying, no way. No way, no middle-aged man would ever have done that, particularly in what he had done. One commentator says, for a mature adult male to run was not only undignified, but also a sign of not being in control. You see, this man didn't care about shame. He didn't care about being humiliated in the eyes of his community. Notice what he did next. He ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Now, this boy hadn't had a shower. This boy had been working with pigs. He was disgusting. 
He was dirty and he was filthy. This was the boy who had embarrassed his father. And now that father runs to him and falls on his neck. He didn't say, whoa, 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 take a shower and then we'll meet up. No, no. He fell on his neck and kissed him. This word kissed in the Greek actually implies that it was kissing over and over and over and over again. It was not just like a, hi, son. It was kissing him and kissing him and kissing him and kissing him and kissing him. It would have made all of us, like, as the kids would say, that's awkward. That's awkward, Dad. Now, why is Jesus giving us this picture? Why is he showing us this? This father showering affection on a dirty, smelly kid. And notice, it was before the son had gotten a word in edgewise. It's not like the dad stood there and said, okay, you come to me, you grovel in front of me to show how much you have humiliated me in the community and you prove to me that you'll never do it again and you get cleaned up and you work your way back into my good graces and then I'll hug you and then I'll kiss you and then I'll welcome you back as my son. No. The dad took the initiative He ran to him before the kid had even gotten his apology out. He was showering him with affection and kisses. Now listen to what happens next. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. And listen how the dad responds. But the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe. The idea here is literally the first most robe. Now who owned the best robe in the house? Who owned the Armani suit? Dad. Dad was saying, kid, you're dirty and smelly, but go ahead and put on my Armani suit. Now what does he say? And put a ring on his hand. What was a ring? A ring was the dad's signet ring. The ring that you put in place to say, this is my authority. I am stamping this document with wax in my symbol. It is a sign of my family authority. And his dad says, put that on his finger. He's my son. He won't be a slave. And then what does he say? And, put, and shoes on his feet. Put on the Gucci's. That's what he deserves. That's what he's going to get. Now, At this point, everyone in the audience, in Jesus' audience, would have said, this is nuts. No dad treats his kid like this. And what is Jesus telling us? What does your God act like as a father? What is the best kind of father like? You say, why did the father act like this? Why did he respond in spite of his humiliation? Notice the father tells us. Verse 23, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. We are going to have a party. Why? For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This, my son. Friends, why did the dad respond with this kind of love? For one simple reason. It was his son. That's why. That was all that mattered. It was his son. And his son was precious to him. Friends, we could make it this simple. God's love toward you and toward me, if we are his child, is based on nothing else than we are his child. 
my son, my daughter. That's what this story is all about. That's why Jesus said that there is a joy in heaven over one sinner that repents because for the simple reason that God is a father, the best father, his love for us is simply based on his relationship to us. Notice not only the rejection of the father, notice not only the response of the father, but notice thirdly the reality of this father's love. Friends, it's this simple. This story is showing us that God's love for us is not conditional. It's not dependent. God's love for us is rooted simply in that he is the best father and he loves his children. Now, I want to say this very clearly because so often our picture of God is so twisted on this. We live in this conditional reality toward God's love toward us. When I'm having a good day spiritually, then God really loves me. And he's smiling at me and, and he just is, he's just so affectionate toward me. And then when I'm having a bad day, oh, surely he doesn't love me so much. In fact, I bet he's frowning at me. I bet he's standing off me and, and giving me a little stiff arm. I'm not even sure he's going to forgive me if I really mess up. And the best father says, my love for you isn't based on your performance. It's not based on whether you're having a good week or a bad week. My love for you is based on the fact that you are my child. Period, full stop, end of story. This father, out of love, ran toward his son before his son had even issued one word of repentance. He ran to him and smothered him with kisses simply because he was his son. Friends, this point is always true. God's affection is always moving towards you. It is always pleading towards you. It is always ready to embrace you in his arms simply because we are his children. God's love is not based on our performance. It is based on his unconditional acceptance of us as his child. But not only that, we should recognize this morning that nonetheless, while God's love is not conditional, our full experience of God's love is conditional. Do you see something about this father? Do you see something even more about this son? What had the son been missing for all that time he was off with riotous living, wasting his money? What had he been missing when he was in the pig pen? What had he been missing when he was rebelling against his father? Was, did his father no longer love him? Absolutely not. His father loved him so much that he was willing to humiliate himself some more to go greet him. What did he miss? He missed the full experience of it. He didn't experience his dad's kisses while he was running away. He didn't experience his dad's compassion while he was gone away. He had left. It was only on that return was he fully able to appreciate the love of God for him. And friends, do you know how true this is as well? If you don't know what that kind of fatherly love is, maybe there's an area in which you need to come back to God today and be ready to get under his authority once again. I remember one time in particular, I still remember it so vividly, I was on the city bus and I was going into work 
And I was just so discouraged. I was just so downcast by my own weakness, by my own failure. And I remember as I was sitting on that bus, just, just so feeling such guilt, feeling such heaviness, feeling such emptiness. It was like God just said, you know, you just need to trust that I forgive you. You just need to trust that I will forgive you and that I love you. And I still remember at that moment on that bus, it was just like I opened my arms and said, yes, God, I'm going to claim your forgiveness right now. I'm going to claim, in a sense, your love right now. And do you know that what flooded my soul at that moment in time was a father's love? It was like a father was just falling on my neck and kissing me over and over and over again. I could have sat on that bus for I don't know how long. Just basking, enjoying that presence of God as my father just said, son, you're forgiven. I love you. And you know, friends, my message to you today, if you're a prodigal, if you know that you've wandered away, if you've rebelled, you've walked off, you've been in your own pig pen, you've been in your own place of wasting the resources that God has given you, my first message to you is this. He's waiting for you to come back. And he wants to fall on your neck. And he wants to show you how much he loves you. He wants to drown you in affection. And the second thing is this. Why wait? The message of the prodigal son is, God always loves you. Don't worry about it. Just keep on living however you want. The message of the prodigal son is, do you see what you're missing? Do you see what you're missing when you're living for yourself? Do you see what you're missing when you're stiff-arming God and rejecting his plan for your life? Do you see? Your father wants to say, I want to show you how much I love you. But as long as you're off in the pig pen and stiff-arming me, you can't experience the fullness and the depth of my love as the best kind of father. You see, the reality of this father's love is not just that it's there and that it's always moving toward us. It's that he always wants to be showering it on us. Romans 5 says that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that is given to us. The Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of God who indwelt you the moment you became a Christian is the one who just showers you with God's love when you come in repentance and faith to walk his path. This is the reality that we can experience. And that means, finally, there is a common question for all of us. Are you the child of God? Do you know what it is for God to be your father? You say, how can God be my father Listen to what 1 John 3 says. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God, the daughter of God, the child of God. What kind of love is it that God would look at you and me who have rebelled against him so often, who have violated his laws, who have been his enemies in the way we think and the way we live, for him to say, I will call you son, I will call you Daughter, you say, how does some, someone become a child of God? Listen to what scripture says. Galatians 3 says that we are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. You say, tell me how that works. 
Do you ever wonder how God truly can love you? Do you ever wonder that? Have you ever known someone who says, I love you, I love you, I love you, but they don't actually show it by the way they act? True love is measured by how much you give, not by how much you take. And God commendeth his love toward us. He demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You say, how much does God love me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That much. He gave what was most precious to him. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You see, that's how much the father loves. I saw a story that was incredibly moving just three years ago. A man named Chris Schultz was a 31-year-old father of four in Detroit Lakes, Minnesota. They were going out for a walk just before Father's Day on the Long Bridge in Detroit Lakes, and his young son, his three-year-old son, was crawling around and fell off the bridge. And Chris Schultz, without a second thought, leapt over the bridge to save his son. He managed to get her to a woman who was just off the shore and hand her his child, and he couldn't hold on, and he went downstream to his death. He literally died to save his three-year-old son. And one of the things that was most moving about it was what this man's brother said. He said he loved his kids more than life itself. Everyone says it, but he proved it. Everyone says it, but he proved it. God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How do you become the child of God? When you follow Jesus Christ in faith, when you embrace him in faith for who he is and what he has done for you on the cross when he died to forgive you of your sins, the Bible says that you are united with Christ, that God sends the spirit of his son into your hearts. You are united. You are connected inseparably with Christ. And on the basis of that faith, on your acceptance of him, you become the child of God forever. That the same love that God has for his only begotten son is the same love he has for you for eternity the same outpouring of affection, the kind of affection that he poured out on his son when he said, you are my well-beloved son in whom I am well-pleased is the same affection that he has for you when you are connected to his son by faith. Friends, if you don't know whether you're the child of God, you don't know whether you have come before Jesus Christ and embraced him as your savior, if you have never bowed before him in faith, don't go another day wondering if God is your father truly. Embrace him today. Be like that prodigal son that comes back, confesses your sin, and takes his pardon and forgiveness. But there's also this. Friend, I don't know how you relate to God, but today will you start looking at him as the best kind of father? 
the one whose love for you is not conditional on your performance, but the one who who invites you day after day to come and experience his love for you by walking in his ways. And on this Father's Day, there's only one more encouragement. Dads, your father is the best kind of father in heaven. Why don't you be like him? Let's pour out to our children that kind of affection that is not conditional. Simply because they're our child, we pour out our affection and love. We let our children know that we delight in them simply because they are our child. We let our children know that our love is limitless for them. It is boundless. It is sacrificial. It is shameless. It is extravagant. When we mimic, when we identify with our Father's love, we can live out that same love for the children that he has given us. Friends, what do you think of when you think of God? I hope today that you'll think of him as the very best Father. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you today. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. I don't know where each person is here today and how they are relating to you as their father, but I pray specifically for anyone here today who does not know whether you are their father. They do not know whether they have ever given themselves to Jesus Christ in faith. Oh, I pray today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day of their adoption into a new family with you as their father. I pray for those here today who are like the prodigal. They are your child, but they've wandered far away. They've been living with the pigs. I pray that today they'd come to themselves that they would return and experience your overflowing, extravagant love, always willing to forgive. And I pray for each one of us who are fathers here today. Would we overflow in delight and affection for the children that you have given us? May we live like our father.